0: News, 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 New, 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 news. new York City,
1: the
2: FAQ NYC podcast
1: getting more and more interesting by the minute, <laughs> FAQ, A- it's FAQ NYC, the New Yorker's podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, this city, I'm Katie Honan, here with Harry Siegel, and we'll be back soon to talk about all the news from another jam-packed week in New York City, but right now, we're joined by Julie Golia a curator and archivist at the New York Public Library, and Leonard Abrams, who 44 years ago launched a monthly paper that became one of the best chroniclers of a changing downtown New York City, the East Village Eye. The paper wrote about commercial rent stabilization. Graffiti legend Lee Quinones, Nina Hagen, Mayor Ed Koch, Jim Jarmusch, the Camille Rouge, ran slum village articles by punk legend Richard Hell, and were reportedly the first to print the term hip-hop. The Eye closed in 1987, but its 72 issues are one of the best looks at a significant cultural and artistic period in New York City history. The archives were just acquired by the New York Public Library. The paper's tagline was, it's all true, and it still is. Welcome, Julie and Leonard, and let's jump right in. Leonard, I want to start first with you uh, and a little background of when you first arrived in the East Village and what made you want to launch a newspaper there in 1979.
2: Well, um, I first moved to the East Village in 1976. I was a bicycle messenger, hung out with a lot of bicycle messengers, and kind of like the tail end of the hippie scene, and there was a band starting to play at CBGBs. I saw television. I thought, oh, that's a good band. <laughs> I saw Dirts. So I said to myself, hey, that's punk rock. I hadn't heard the term, but <laughs> it's what it was. But then I moved out west for a little while, And uh, I was in Denver, I was in Boston, I hadn't really lived outside of the city. So then I came back, it was uh, 78, moved. uh, I was in Brooklyn, I moved to the Lower East Side uh, right on New Year's Day, 1979. Now, as I said somewhere before, a scene is really great if you're doing a publication. Ah, uh, periodical like like I was doing pop culture avant pop kind of the underground stuff a scene is great you want a scene you want movement and uh, because you want people to be excited about something and it was exciting and I was excited so that was it I knew that it was going to work
1: and just for the our listeners who were not there at the time I think this this point of time in New York City history especially culturally and with music and art it sort of lives in people's imaginations, but you lived it. Uh, how would you describe that scene that made you want to capture it within your newspaper?
2: A lot of people doing a lot of things, new things, exciting things, you know, uh, because, you know, the have been times in East Village and all around the U.S. Uh, were very exciting, too. A lot of rebellion. There was the war, the Vietnam War, and uh, people were up in arms and people were dropping out of that society they didn't believe in because of the war, also because of the bulge of uh, baby boomers. There was a critical mass of kids that were uh, all up in arms and arrested. That was great. That kind of petered out. When the war, when the war wound down, that petered out, and uh, then there was. Uh, the scene in the East Village got hard. There were drugs, there was crime, there was murder. And a lot of people, then it was like, oh, that's sort to of the country. Back to the country. That was the whole scene. That was a thing that, that was going on. So it got very quiet in the East Village. And then then came all this new stuff. And these people who were fed up with the nothingness that they were experiencing. And, of course, the whole thing about... um. Vacancy rate was so high. All these people leaving the city, not just the hippies, of course, but the middle class, the white middle class particularly. Um, They built co-op city that ruined the Bronx in a sense. It sucked up all the middle class people and the rest went to hell. And there's a lot of abandonment in the Lower East Side too. But if you were a writer, or an artist, a musician, you 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 couldn't you you worry a lot about rent you moved to, move to East village, lower east side. It took me two days, a month, as a bicycle messenger, mind, to pay my share of the rent on my apartment. So you can see, you know, we have plenty of time for ourselves, and that's what creative people need. So it was like, boom, all this shit started
3: happening. Again. Very exciting. So, Leonard, one more thing before we bring uh, Julian here. You did this for eight years. Uh, I don't know if you were also continuing to work as a bike messenger, but one way or another, you were able to put this out every month with these incredible centerfolds. Uh, uh, Katie and I were joking. It's like the opposite of playboy. Uh, oh no, I only read it for the centerfolds um, for for eight years. Um, and, and I'm just interested if looking back decades later, as you've helped, uh, I believe, to, to to get this preserved uh, online, as the New York Public Library is now in possession of the full archives, if this felt like an historical record at the time, and as you were doing this work, if this was just keeping up with the flow of uh, events and the scene as it was developing around you, what your perspective was then and uh, what, what it is now, and this moment of almost formalized nostalgia where where you know there's there's uh media requests and and you're looking back at an earlier period of your life
2: how many questions is that
4: (laughs) (laughs) it's a run-on sentence Uh, for mary
2: okay uh i started to wonder is it is it possible to describe as like um Well, what was it like during the Depression or during the war? Mind you, I don't feel that people were under the same stress as a war or or, uh, the Depression. uh, It was just different then. You had a lot of people in uh, the uh, middle class of America uh, in the greatest sense. A lot of people who were contemplating uh what's my life what's my existence about in, in, and uh okay now i don't know people they say that you know people are reevaluating because of the uh the, the recent plague the recent covid uh situation but anyway this careerism this enforced careerism that we've been experiencing in the, in new york city and in so many other places where you have to look at survival issues all the time, it wasn't really like that. We had as a matter of fact, it was kind of a release from that. Now, I didn't go to Vietnam. I conceivably could have I had a very high draft number, and uh, I wasn't going to go. I knew I wasn't going to go anyway no, I did not uh, was not that attached to the American Empire concept anyway, but at that time, people were released they actually felt released from the, the the uh trauma of the war and have maybe having to go and fight. Uh and it was just easy to survive, plain and simple. Then you go down the lonely side and it's very easy to survive, except you might get killed. But probably not. So uh that was good enough for a lot of people who really wanted. They needed that time themselves they wanted to uh do something meaningful with their lives. And uh, they were able to
3: and and now like like uh in this very expensive very different new york oh god do they say now
2: that new york city is the most expensive city on earth (laughs) it's insane it's it's dehumanizing it's it's a plague it is a plague in and of itself i mean people still get to do things they live in very small places they live in basements. They live in holes in the wall. They share a lot, and they, they still go out. They go to clubs. They, they, they do all kinds of creative things. I, I, I think that there's probably a, um, an overlay of tension because of survival issues, and then there are the issues of how I'm not going to have the American life that uh, my parents or grandparents at this point had, I imagine that if it's harder to achieve, you you may want it more. If you've got it on the plate right in front of you, you're like, eh, who needs it? I go to the East Village sometimes. I do things. I hang out. <clears throat> I hang out. And, yeah, you know, it's still there. And, you know, if you go home by 7, it's really not that bad. But, uh, it, no, it's not <laughs> what it was.
1: Leonard and Julia, you know, I wanted to ask because um, – it took you a long time or a few years to get these archives placed somewhere. And, and they did land at the New York public library. So um, I'll ask Julie first, Julie Golia, the uh, curator at the library, how you see this collection coexisting what, with what the New York public library has, you know, I know a few years ago you acquired Lulu Reed's collection. Maybe they sort of can live together and, and talk to each other after hours or something. And then Leonard, if you want to chime in about um where did you think these would end up? I don't know when you're going down this road of, of where you think these can end up, but Julie, if you want to talk a little bit about how the East Village Eye fits in with what's already at the library.
4: Yeah, I, so I oversee the manuscripts and archives collections mm-hmm. at the New York Public Library. And I mean, it's a vast collection. We have almost 30,000 linear feet of materials, about 6,000 collections, you know, we cover hundreds of years. But actually the heart of that archive is New York City and the beating heart of New York City, the diversity of New York City, diversity of people, ideas, communities. And then I think something that is so central to the entire history of New York City is the way it disappears, the way it gets rewritten over and over again. And so when I got to meet with Leonard and Arthur Fournier and look at this collection, it was so clear to me that this captured a moment in New York City in its enormity and in, in the, the the breadth of its culture and in a way that actually very little that we had did. Um, and it captured arts um, and it captured photography and it captured music and it captured nightlife, but it also captured um the rise of AIDS, you know, the transformation of the streetscape. There's so much that is like, you could geolocate in this collection, you know, like Leonard and the I team would make like maps of the East Village with lots of different locations on it. You could just like, I could see so many scholars drawing on that to build and recreate and like study this vanished New York. Right. And, and then on top of it, you know, I myself, am a, I'm a journalism historian And this was an enormously influential newspaper. It was deeply rooted in the city, but it was also, it had this global reach where there's this really sort of lovely process by which people would take their copies of the eye around the world and they would photograph themselves reading it at like the Acropolis. And then they would send Leonard a picture and he would publish it in the paper. And it just gives this sense of like, this almost like seeding the world with these revolutionary ideas for this this sort of decade. And, And so I think we're perfect home for it Um, and there's so much there there's papers, the administrative papers there's the issues itself the library is now the only public institution to possess all 72 print issues of this newspaper in the world we're incredibly proud of that Um, there's photography, there's art and uh, one of my absolute favorite things that is part of this collection is Leonard's date books and phone books where we see who he's meeting with and where he's going every day. and the people that he's connecting with. And it gives you this unparalleled glimpse into the life of a journalist for a decade. So, and we are incredibly excited to think about all the collections that tie into this. We acquired the Lou Reed papers a number of years back. We have an incredible exhibition about this up at our Library for the Performing Arts right now. I'm so excited to draw on the parallels between this and the Fab Five Freddy collection that came recently to the Schomburg Center. There's a network of people and relationships that we get to now piece together because of this collection.
3: Julie, on this podcast, uh, we're generally, very tough on institutions. Uh, the, the the library system is often an exception to that. Uh, you know, I think it's one of New York's uh, great public treasures in all these different ways. Just the branches that people use in their own lives, and you know, the kids go to after school. The archives, the collections, all that. But for people who who you're just touching on it, this doesn't necessarily click, right? Like you have this awesome collection that people can go and just uh, go to the Google and like find for themselves. And then these other materials that are related to it, we've had a pandemic. Uh, it's been a very weird couple of years. Can you just talk about the, the what it means for a library to have all these parts, to have the full physical collection? You're, you're a newspaper historian. I've been trying to keep my own columns from the daily news, you know, it's, it's hard to do. I'm actually curious if Leonard had a full his own full archive at the end of this, or or tried to assemble that. Uh, But can you just speak a bit about what the value of a library having a collection like this, as opposed to it just sort of being out there on the internet or somewhere in the world that you can figure out where to look is?
4: The New York Public Library is a lot of different libraries, actually. It wears a lot of different hats. And I think the part that most people interact with in there every day is their local branch library, where they may take out a novel or they might come for like a language class or bring their kids to sort of nurture a growing love of reading. We have incredible programs and opportunities through them. I work at the 42nd Street building with the Lions in front of it, which is a kind of different um, structure, but just as important one. We're a research center. We are committed to collecting materials and protecting them as we say, in perpetuity, and a fancy way of saying forever. And I think this is something that Leonard and I talked a lot about during this process. We are an institution that is both deeply public, and deeply committed to cutting-edge preservation of important historical materials. A lot of other special collections libraries, and I oversee special collections at the library, it's kind of hard to get in. You have to register. You have to go far distance. Sometimes people have to bring letters um, for access to them. That is not the case for us. You know, you can walk in off the street, come up to the third floor, walk into the Brooke Russell Astor reading room, and we we will help you access what you need with just your library card and a short, you know, introductory visit with our librarians. And this is the thing I'm, I'm most proud of, um, of, li- of the New York Public Library Special Collections, is that we can tell Leonard that we are committed to preserving these materials forever, but we can also tell him that we're committed to serving these materials forever to anybody who wants to come in and look at them.
2: Yeah, that's why I thought that it was the best place for uh, this collection. Because, I mean, what we were doing is, uh, our bills, uh, um, well, it was populist in the best sense. We were interested in what people wanted and what people were saying. And at the same time, of course, you have artists, you have avant-garde people uh who are pushing the uh the limits but you know, within the context of the art they're doing so it is a real hybrid of that and so uh to know it's going to a place that is about the people i mean you can't you can't beat it and i also wanted to say that um at the time people were very aware that there were special things going on i mean uh the joke how many punks does it take to screw in a light bulb, right? And it's like, oh, uh, you know, one to screw in the light bulb and, uh, you know, nine to be on the guest list. But uh, (laughs) also, I was going to say, it's like nine to take a picture. People were very aware it was going on and there was a lot of documentation and uh, a lot of excitement and people were conscious that there were important things going on and we wanted people to know about it and we wanted them to be preserved.
1: And Leonard that gets me to my next question here you know there was reading the and you and you have digitized these copies on on, on a website i was going through so many of them this week. Uh-huh. And and when you look at these Issues in in their totality, you know, you covered everything from, you know, the Times Square art show and Jenny Holzer and but then also the AIDS crisis and a sit down interview with governor uh, with governor. Sorry, he wishes uh, with Mayor Ed Koch and his HPD commissioner at the time and the AIDS crisis. And you had a health column and an advice column. So how did you sort of imagine this newspaper to cover all that? I mean, commercial rent stabilization, by the way, Ruth Messenger is still trying for that. Um, But how did you sort of envision it where you're capturing? the fun stuff, the arts, the music, the culture, but then also rent and housing.
2: Well, I will tell you, this is the best. I had been thinking about this for a long time, you know, before I did it, you know. Uh, I just always, I mean, even in high school, I started underground paper. And the idea to me is, is, is creating a community in print. I want to, to create a world. Uh, you, when you're in the paper, you're in this liberated space you are you have all these aspects of culture you're living in it and conversing and uh, that's how I saw it. I see the world, and I'm not crazy about it. I mean the world that we were coming from was this um, quotidian nightmare that uh was scary in its lack of uh, meaningful content and so we create this paper not just me of course absolutely not there were the work of 50 people in a typical issue 50 it's a lot of people to get in there and i really love that and i wanted to i wanted to have a many points of entry so you've got the comics i loved underground comics in in the 70s particularly in the early 70s like just reading all of them and uh, living my hippie life and reading Robert Crumb and Jay Lynch and uh, all these great uh, underground comics people. But what was great about them is that they could write anything, they could write, they could draw anything they wanted. And the shit that Robert Crumb did was its insane. Uh, so, anyway, okay, so we got the comics. So, there's it's, it's nothing easier to get involved in than the comics. You know, it's always the question, why doesn't the New York Times have comics? Well, uh, anyway, uh, maybe <laughs> they should. <laughs> Instead, they've got cooking. Okay. But uh, so you've got the comics, and then every story, we came up with a with a standard formula. The headlines, got headline, to have a pull quote, It's got to have captions, got to have an intro. So you get you get into the story. In the beginning, we just we just stopped the story there. It was good enough. We had a lot of shit to do, but then we developed it. So we I wanted astrology for sure. I wanted astrology. I wanted personal advice, but we're not going to do it like everybody else did it. We did it our way. We had satirical obituaries. The obituaries was like maybe my favorite part of the paper because this guy Tx Irving he was just brilliant. He was, Smartest guy I ever. Uh, I don't know if anybody else did satirical obituaries before the Eastonian died, but <laughs> that's a small claim that we may be able to make. We wanted to be fun, but then you get the shit that is more serious. You get David Vinerowicz talking about the terror of his early life, the abuse, the almost getting killed, being a hustler. Uh, you've got people with a lot of radical experiences and, uh, we just kind of wove it together. Uh, so, you know, you had the, uh, you have the, the, comedy, the terror, you know, we, you had the the columns, there was, uh, you know, some abstract thought and I to put it all in.
4: I think Leonard hit it on the head with the notion of the newspaper as a community. And I think this is incredibly relevant. I think this is actually a really understudied thing. The idea of almost like what we consider to be like internet chat rooms or conversations, the before the internet, these took place in different forms of new media, right? In newspapers like this, I write about, for example, advice columns, that's another place, amazing advice column in the East Village Eye, another place where people are beginning dialogue. And so I think this is actually another thing I'm incredibly excited for researchers to come in and explore in the eye is the idea of the newspaper as a like a virtual community center where ideas can be exchanged. And I think this tension of like the fun and the gravity and the way that the newspaper balanced these things out, I think really defines that.
3: So both of you, let me do first, look, if you saw the world and weren't crazy about it then I am interested what you think of the world now (laughs) uh, and how quotidian it is. Then Julian, maybe you want to take up really either of you, right? Does that mean it's begging for or totally resistant to something like an East Village eye now? Or would that have to take some sort of, of different form given the way people now convene online as opposed to in print? So that's another that's another whole bunch of questions and one question, but at least it's shorter. What do we think of the world now? And uh, wh- where's the space for forms like this now? Or is there?
2: Well, I mean, I can try to tell you what I think of the world now. <laughs> You know, uh, I'd rather, of course, I, I'm very concerned about so many people about our, our destruction of our natural world, of our physical world. And, uh, can we preserve it? Because, you know, that is the field on which we all play, uh, that takes precedence. Uh, it's very, uh, worrisome being older i don't get as crazed about things as i used to because that state of adolescence is just being uh being wigged out about so many things i i've got enough of it (laughs) but i don't have as much of it so um i mean look populations are crashing, uh, growth rates are crashing. Uh, they say China's shrinking. Maybe there's hope. Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll be better. Uh, you know, if we could survive this huge, um, bulge of population growth, you know, maybe the world will survive the world. As we know, of course it will survive. It just may not be that nice, but, uh, I don't know what the disembodied, uh, you know, uh, discourse uh means people still go out right they go to bars they meet they talk i like print i don't feel the same about the other stuff i just i wish i did i just don't it's just not the same i like print of course now do i go buy all the papers no i read them online because there they are but uh i think uh there's there's a place for the kind of thing that, that that i did that I and my cohorts did, uh, and uh, I think that if you put enough things in the periodical that are worth keeping in a sense of object value, that is one thing that people can do to, uh, that, that can't be done online, NFTs notwithstanding. If you put in great art, you put in something worth keeping then that is, I think, po- a possible antidote to the disposable nature and the immediate
3: impermanence of the kind of thing that we're, we've gotten used to. Julie, do you want to jump in here for a minute? I see you nodding.
4: Yeah, I'm just nodding because I could listen to Leonard talk about this forever. <laughs> um, oh, this is a tough, this is a very difficult question. I, <clears throat> I, too, am old enough that I seek the material and sort of intrinsically feel suspect about, you know, a commitment to only, like, preserving digital. But I also think that um, we have to understand that um, a new generation of people are building their lives around and seeking identity and community within the digital in ways that non-digital Natives can maybe not understand. Actually, having a, having a, a, a tween <laughs> has really uh, affected and shaped the way that I think about my work as, a, as somebody whose job it is to select the materials that will be the future historical materials that the next generation of historians and scholars look at. So actually something the library has really been thinking deeply about is um, how to preserve the digital how to do the curatorial work to sift through the vast amount of data that we create on on digital platforms um, and to to preserve in a way that can be accessible both in content and in form for the future. Now, that said, I think really, to me, the heart of the story of the East Village Eye is the moment that it captured and then of course what comes after which is the transformation of that neighborhood. And so another incredibly important thing that the library and that all collecting institutions need to do is to all, is to seek out communities that have moved elsewhere. I think a lot of this sort of the scene that we see in the 1980s is being embodied and played out in so many places still in New York City, places in Queens, places in Staten Island. I think this is like one of the most understudied um, centers of our city um, in terms of building, for example, artistic cultures, right? And very multicultural artistic cultures. So we have to seek the new East villages, <laughs> the East villages of, the, of, of this um, century, and to preserve their stories.
1: Leonard, I think you live in Ridgewood, I read, so is that sort of the new East village? Yeah. <laughs> and then I have one final question well, for you. Maybe a few years ago it was. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's sort of expensive now, Yeah. And-
2: well, Ridgewood, yeah, Ridgewood has gone up. <clears throat> it's still better than uh, Manhattan, of course. I mean, uh, I shouldn't say it, right? But uh, yeah, there are still, there are still ways to, uh, you know, you go to Glendale, I always had my, I had my eye on Ridgewood for a long time because the, the confluence of the uh, JMZ line with the M and the L meant that that was an area that people could get to. And that, you know, uh, uh, subway is destiny, you know, in New York City. So, uh, uh, Ridgewood is great. There are a lot of things going on. I haven't even gone to there's trans Pecos. There's these new spaces coming up. It's pretty good. Uh, no, it's not the East village. You know, you can't make the ranch on two days work unless you've, uh, really got some crazy good job, but, uh, there is a lot of things going on in Ridgewood Bushwick that, um that you know, that that are really valid and, and good stuff. I was uh I was driving down um Myrtle Avenue and late at night and I see all these young people lining up in front of some hole in the wall. Oh wow there's something I didn't even know what it was. And I won't know because I, I don't stay out that late. <laughs> but uh <laughs> plus, you know, I mean there's a time for everything, right? But there's things going on and uh, so, yeah, don't don't give up,
1: New York. Don't give up. And, Leonard, just one final question. I know um, when you closed the paper in 1987, you know, it just had become a lot for you to I think. The New Yorker said you worked 50 hours a week on it and it was hard to pay all your contributors and all that. But you still sort of remained in the scene. Do you want to just talk briefly about what you did in the years after? I um, know you said you also did yeah. some boring stuff like copy editing, but uh, all the fun stuff.
2: All right. <clears throat> Well, okay, so uh, I was massively depressed for several months, and uh, then I somehow pulled out of it. I was so physically exhausted. I uh, I was really concerned about you know all this paranoia about dying and all this. And then I say, well, geez, I'm not dying. Okay, so then I teamed up with Chuck Crook, who uh, was doing a lot of interesting things at the Eye. Was putting together fashion sections. He had his own little after hours club called Nickel Bag. And Anyway, we decided to do parties, so we got these big spaces uh in the Lower East Side East Village, these old community spaces. Um, there was a place called Kwando, now it's it's no longer there, as I'm the Second Avenue, Houston. So we went up on the roof, we did parties on the roof. So, so I said, let's call it Milky Way, okay? You're dragging up beer and ice, you know, six floors. I don't know how we did it, but I did today, you know, forget it. <laughs> Anyway, so we had these big parties and then we moved to another space on the Lower East Side, which is now I think it's Clemente, Soto Sotovills. Uh and it's all caught up into theaters and things, but the ground floor was open. There was like, I don't know, six, seven thousand square feet, eight thousand square feet. It was the uh, the gym and the and the cafeteria at the same time. And these huge parties. We had we had uh the um, Zulu Nation Party one. one of their, they did an annual party, all kinds of great people. Africa Mambada organized it. They had Public Enemy, and other times we had Queen Latifah. She was 16. It might have been her first show. We had the Jungle Brothers, De La Soul, Gangstar. We had all these great people. Uh, And it was a lot of fun, and and it was mixed. We had a lot of, we we had interracial people there, which I thought, i was cool they felt comfortable because it was black white in between. Okay. So we did that. I did that in various, we knew the uh, hotel Amazon and then finally that was over. And then I, and then all of a sudden I was really broke. And so I started writing marketing reports, uh, is yeah, snack food, frozen fish. I survived somehow. I, I did proofreading, I did copy editing, but I was continue to write. I was I, I wrote a couple of screenplays, I wrote essays. Eventually technology uh developed to the point where I could buy a camera for not a lot of money and, and make my own movies I would watch to make movies. So then, I started this project, which was a documentary about Afro-Brazilian villages, and uh, but the, the the these villages, um, have, m- many of them, had a history of. Um, These were maroon communities. These were people who escaped slavery and recreated their own lives in in communities away from the white world in Brazil. And it's not just Brazil. It happened all over in Mexico, in Central America, in the islands. And they were called quilombos. In Brazil, they're called quilombos. Uh, Haiti. You can say that Haiti's a one big quilombo, if you like. Mm. Um, So, Okay. So I, I stayed with the people in various places in Brazil, in the Amazon, the, in the, uh, the, uh, tropical Atlantic regions. And, uh, that was a great thing. I really loved that. And then since then I've been developing, uh, other film projects and, uh, do writing more stuff that I hope that I'll be able to produce. And, uh, then we started in with this archive thing and then, uh, developing that and, uh, Developing these other projects and uh, here we are and uh, now I decided to uh, see more of the world and so I am Going spending I I gave up my uh, Regular place. I have a I have a small place and uh, I've been going spending time in Brazil and Colombia and Mexico And I hope to uh, go out to the Far East for a little while before I settle in for another long haul here in New York
1: Leonard, do you have like a favorite issue? Was there a point where you said like July 84, that was, that was the greatest issue we put out or something?
2: You know, I really love them all.
1: <laughs> like uh, your children, right? You I, can't
2: pick I, I love all my children. I would say I really love the summer 1980 issue uh, because things were getting really tough at that time. And then we, we came out with this great issue and like, I kind of rejuvenated the thing. You know, we did the Times Square show. We had a lot of great columnists. David McDermott wrote about, wrote about gay shame. He wrote about yes. issues in the gay community that were really, uh, mm-hmm. I was, uh, it turned out to shake a lot of people up. And then um, it was the sex and video issue. We had great stories about Paul Chinkle, about, uh, um, um, What's her name? Uh, Emily Armstrong, Pat Armstrong and Emily Ivers. And a lot of the great people. Uh, we had a Richard Hellcom, We had Bartang, Bartang Tang. Uh, it's part of his novel, Big Ideas Go Haywire. A lot of great stuff. So
4: I, I, I do really like that. I, I a, such a treat for me was getting to go through each issue with Leonard and have him narrate them essentially annotate them for me. I mean it was I remember looking at the gay shame issue with leonard and also like hearing him talk not just about the stories but about this is when we changed the masthead we really realized that the design had to go more like this i wish there was a way to recreate what i got to do with leonard that afternoon where i got to go through every every issue
3: that that could actually be something with a uh, like on youtube with the podcast just so you can show some of that like a very recreatable thing, just imagine. I know.
4: I, trust me, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking it's like <laughs> an exhibition with a screen yeah. and, and ah. people get to swipe through and you get to have Leonard in the corner being like, I remember when we did this. Watch out, Leonard. You better come back from Brazil because I got a lot of work for
2: you. <laughs> oh, uh, I can talk till I'm blue in the face about it. <laughs> I mean, it was really like a, <clears throat> the compression of so much into those years. People say, well, are you still talking about that stuff? But it is a
1: lot to unpack.
4: Um, it, there's a lot there. Yeah. That's right. There is a lot there.
1: I know that it's a long process to get this material ready and, and protect it. But when can anyone with a NYPL card go through that process to actually see these in print?
4: So the collection will be processed, it will be rehoused, and a finding aid will be created for it, which um, will essentially sort of an intellectual map that will allow people to explore and understand what is in the materials. We anticipate that should be done by the end of 2023, and so um, will be open by the end of the year.
1: Wow. So thank you both for coming on. And I will encourage our listeners, you know, there's an, we'll, we'll link up. You could see it online as well, if you want to look at it, but I I know there's nothing, although I work for a digital publication, nothing beats print and holding it in your hand or, or, or in whatever protective way the library will have it. But, uh, thank you so much, uh, for this amazing archive and sharing the story. So thank you.
0: Thank you. F A Q. -Q. (laughs) This has been F A Q NYC. We're a part of the city. A nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc, and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc/give if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popular.com. Our hosts this episode were Katie Honan and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer, and I'm our engineer, Adam Kimara. Thank you to our guests, Julie Golia, curator and archivist at the New York Public Library, and Leonard Abrams, founder of the East Village Eye. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.